This week on InfoSex Inc., Matt talks about his doctorate residency. A TV manufacturer spying on its customers? What the heck is Phyllis Malware? We discuss evolving the Security Operations Center. And also, overwhelmed sock managers. So get ready to get in sync with InfoSex Sync. Hello, and welcome to the 29th episode of the InfoSex Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSex Inc. is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for the stories of the week, ending February 10th, 2017. What, what up, up InfoSexing fam? Welcome, Welcome to our 29th, 29th episode. episode. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on, Nick? How you doing? Good, man. It's great to have you back. Absolutely. So if, for uh, you listeners who don't know, we took the week off last week because Matt had to go to ATL because he had a residency for his doctorate program. So how did that go, Matt? A-Town was awesome. Yeah? It was great hospitality. Um, I got to spend time with my cohort. Cohort six. Cohort tutors. six. You already know. <laughs> the opposite of theory. T-O-O-T. Um, Capella University, 2019. Um, so I got to spend uh, you know some time with my fellow uh, cohorts who are in the Doctorate of Information Technology um, program at Capella University. Uh-huh. It was awesome. Um, some great experiences there. Not only did, you know, I learn a lot, but I also forged a lot of relationships. Everybody in the cohort, um, I believe we had about 30 to 35 people in the cohort. I don't know the exact number. That's a big cohort, man. Yeah, it's pretty big. The, um, DBA cohort was a hundred. Wow. Yeah. So, you know. We we were a very concentrated group of in, individuals, and the cool thing is that it not only taught me. So the whole um, target of the weekend, kind of the objectives, were to basically be able to perform critical research on scholarly peer-reviewed articles mm-hmm. and um, kind of develop your your problem statement for your dissertation, which is kind of the first step. So we were deep in data, deep in research. Um, we had pretty much an entire day with the librarian where I was like, you know, before that, I didn't have a lot of appreciation for librarians. I'm not going to lie to you. After that, librarians are my favorite person. Now no you know, lie. right? Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't understand the significance of having um, a large kind of collection of of peer-reviewed articles journals um those types of things because you know my undergrad it's it's pretty much in the weeds you're you're learning a lot of stuff graduate degree you hit it a little bit it's not that critical um you know your your post masters into your terminal degree which is you know your doctorate you're you're leaning into it a lot so Basically, the librarian is like the kickstand, right? They are the person that's keeping you propped up because it is very hard to sift through all this data, find things that are relevant and, um, you know, uh, that will will make the difference between defining the problem statement, finding where you can provide value to the industry looking at what has already been done, where there are gaps that are defined in the literature, and then providing value add in those gaps. And big shout out to Dr. Yates. Um, she was awesome. She's So it's split into three tracks. Track one was us. Track, and that's your first year. Track two is second year um, doctoral students. And then track three is you're pretty much done with the dissertation. You're good to go. Um, just some finishing touches. 
and um, it was great being able to sit down with people from the other tracks, trade lesson learned, um, lessons learned, and tools, techniques, procedures that can be implemented to make the process that much easier. I went into the weekend not knowing what I was going to do. Um, I knew I wanted to do something on risk management, didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I left the weekend knowing exactly what I wanted to do and um, knowing the difference between qualitative research, quantitative research, and just feeling more confident overall. And also realizing that with the doctorate, my target is to get the dissertation done, right? Right. But I I have to focus on the skill set that I'm going to gain which are problem solving. And again, I said we're the opposite of theory. So we're scholarly scholarly practitioners. So me being able to define a problem, find data that kind of corresponds to that problem area, finding a gap, and then some potential solutions that can be implemented. Um, so what more can you ask for, right? So 2019 is June 2019. Hopefully, you know, everything will be squared away. And I'll be good to go, but I'm going to keep it moving forward, keep it going. And yeah, so the weekend was great. Weather was good. People are great in Atlanta. We stayed at the um, Marquis Marriott. Oh, that's awesome. The, I've stayed there before. I like that one. It reminds you of something out of Vegas. <laughs> um, they have Pulse in there. They have, um, I forgot the name of the restaurant, but um, they have a few other spots in there. They have Seer. Uh, which was a good restaurant. And then um, High Velocity was the other one. Really good stuff, you know, really, really good conversations at dinner. So I thought and it again, was just going to be your your cohort, but it was actually a whole bunch of them together, right? Yeah, so it was track one, track two, track three. So how runners. many people all together? Ooh, we were probably in the neighborhood. See, the thing is, for example, with the DIT learners, the track two folks, it was significantly whittled down from what they started with. Because there, you know, there's there's a high dropout rate for the doctoral um, programs, right? Uh, so track one was the most. I would say collectively we probably had about two hundred to two hundred twenty people. I, I was would say not expecting you to say that. I was expecting you to say like fifty to sixty. No, holy I mean, cow! It was it was yeah it was easily in the neighborhood of two hundred and twenty to two hundred and fifty. So people. so really, you guys kind of took over the Marriott Marquis downtown, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know the exact numbers. That's what it seemed like. You know, by the time Sunday came around, when we had our pinning ceremony, when we walked across the stage and got our pins and all that, you know, I was tired. So it seemed like there was a lot of people. There may not have been that many people, but um, I know in the DBA side there were a lot. So. I may be overstating that. It may be... I, I know it was definitely more than 100, right? So for you to say 50 or 60, which is what I was expecting going into the weekend, it was crazy leaving, you know, seeing that many people. But, and not a plug for Capella, well, kind of, right? Because I love Capella, but 80% of the staff at Capella, they're doctors, right? Number one. Mm-hmm. And number two... Uh, I believe Kella or Capella is rated in the top schools for um, doctoral programs like this. Wow! So, so I should have started with you, man. I know, dude. Where are you at, man? <laughs> started from the bottom. Now we're here, right? But um, it should be good, man. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's going to take this podcast to another level too, because I think I'll be able to provide a value add in the sense of looking in the data and kind of looking at some trends analysis and and basically our listeners, right? We're, we're having a discussion here between me and you, but the listeners get to be in on that. And, you know, a good way for you guys to interact with us is either on Twitter. I mean, it's you can always hit, a, hit us up at InfoSexInc if you hear something on here and, you know, you're following along on the podcast and it's like, wow, I think this would be cool. I think that would be cool. But I think it's going to amp it up. It's, it's going to take this conversation and discussion that we have to a new level. So I'm, I'm excited for that. Like and actually, that. we're going to do that here in this episode, right? So um, once we cover some stories, we're also going to have a discussion on some trends that were uh, that Cisco had gone over as well as McAfee for... Um, some specialized stuff with the uh, security operations centers, but 
let's not get ahead of ourselves. Cool. Should we jump in? Jump in with both feet? Yeah, so that was some good insight. So what's our first story today, Matt? All right, our first story uh, comes to us from Bernard Marr. He's a respected um, best-selling author and big data expert. So he basically said TV manufacturers spy on customers using advanced big data analytics. Whoa, right? Not only does that sound cool, Ooh. <laughs> it's using big data, which in it in and of itself is a big word. Yeah, but um, definitely definitely uh, an attention grabber there. So. U.S. TV manufacturer Vizio's uh, underhanded big data dealing may have just cost it $2.2 million, a cold $2.2 million. That's a lot but, of money. <laughs> right. But um, the author thinks it is something we can unfortunately expect to see a lot more of. So the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, this week announced that viewing data of individual households was monitored through a built-in spy device, which used image recognition technology. So, Internet of Things, here we go. IoT. IoT. Yep. So, once every second, software in the Vizio TVs would read pixel data from a segment of the screen. This was sent home and compared against a database of film, television, and advertising content to determine exactly what was being watched. Mm -hmm. So the Federal Trade Commission has revealed that Vizio went further than this, matching data on what was being watched with IP addresses and selling it, along with third-party demographic data, to businesses and organizations with a need for audience measurement. No, no, no. Tisk tisk. Not good, right? That The Apple was there, and they were like, I'm going to take a bite. <laughs> but that's not always good. So... This week we heard that Vizio paid $2.2 million to settle the FTC complaint, agreed to stop collecting its uh, viewing data in this way, and to delete data it had already collected from its servers. That What about the backups, though, right? Right. No, either way. <laughs> <laughs> that might seem like a comparatively low figure, but this may be, as Vizio point out in their statement, because personally identifiable information was not transmitted. Hold up. If okay, I got you. So they weren't using the camera; they were just looking at pixels on the were, screen. Yeah, to see right. what they were looking at, I guess. Okay, got you. So, what if somebody was using the TV as a monitor and then had some PII on there? Oh, that's a good one, Matt. See, they didn't even think about that. Mind blown. Boom. Either way, <laughs> Kermit. But that's none of my business. <laughs> so, um, this isn't the first time our uh, smart home entertainment systems have been ac accused of spying on us. In 2013, LG admitted that voice data was being captured and transmitted, even if users had denied consent for this to happen. And in 2015, there was a concern after it found that Samsung TVs were also recording and sending home living room chatter. So, interestingly. And acknowledging that this is likely to be a problem, which only becomes more frequent in the future, the FTC put out some suggestions for manufacturers of smart home equipment. So this is not just smart TVs. This is smart everything, which will help them steer clear of this sort of trouble. Okay. And those points were, one, explain your data collection processes up front. Two, get consumer consent before you collect and share highly specific information about their preferences. Three, make it easy for customers to exercise options. And four, establish consumer protection principles as they apply to new technologies. Okay. Problem, right? Problem number one is this is going to become one of those agreements that no one looks at. They, Yeah, like the EULA. Yep, they, they just check it off. Right. So it's a checkbox for the manufacturer to say that they put it in the box. But not really, though, because nobody really looks at it. So it kind of just gives them the go-ahead to do what they need to do <laughs> however do you remember when we were talking about um it was i think it was a few episodes back but we were talking about a label a cybersecurity rating label that should be placed on i believe it was routers and access points do you remember that yes just like the food labels right yeah why couldn't this be put onto smart devices giving it well. a rating <laughs> right yeah. i mean that keeps it simple and plain you put the high points up there so if i have a device you could even 
not just give it one rating. I'm not talking like um, the ESRB with games, right? right? Where it's rated mature or E for everyone. Like we could have um, privacy. It gets an A on privacy. Or software update gets an A on software. So you're talking about support. like a, a couple, um, a couple items. So it might get an A on privacy, but get a C on um, security or something. Yeah. So you know how you would do this? How's that, Matt? So here's the special sauce behind that. Ooh. Plausibly, what you could do is you could look at the either A, ask consumers what they care about, or B, look at the breaches of information and compromises that have occurred over the past six years, seven years, look at the trends, and then base the ratings and things that you have to put on that label which is a disclosure to the consumer upon that data that you receive. What so about, now we know mm-hmm. that consumers are going to care about it, one. And two, it's data that is relevant to the purchase that they're going to make and the thing that they're going to install in their home. That's that's very interesting. Um, what about for stuff that's going to happen, like zero days? I, I guess that's just something that you have to gamble with then. So with O days... Interestingly enough, it's not necessarily the fact that there's an O-Day. If an O-Day remains persistent, then it becomes a vulnerability that's out there and everybody knows about and they continue to use. Good example, MS-08-067, right? That's in Metasploit, all this stuff. I believe it was SMB, right? So it, um, it basically you know, is a Windows vulnerability that's out there that can be used time and time again on an unpatched Windows system. Unpatched. So if there is good software support and update support and the company has the infrastructure to support that, such as they have the update servers out there, um, they have developers working on it that can update the code if there's an O-Day that's discovered, Um, They do library vetting and things of that nature to make sure there's no underlying vulnerabilities because there may not necessarily be an O-Day to the proprietary code, but it could affect either an underlying library or certificate that it's using or something of that nature. Right. If they have good (laughs) consumer security hygiene, (laughs) then there's no problem. You're talking about the the company, right? Yes, I'm talking about the company because... If I'm buying a device from that company and it's a smart device and I'm going to connect it to my house, right, and increase the attack surface of my network and that specific device, a good example of this would be a lock, right? So you have a smart lock that's connected or a smart garage door opener that's connected to your internet and you decided to cheap out. You got a really cheap device. Great deal. Well, because you, you use the same mentality when buying that device as you do for buying a real deadbolt lock or a real garage door opener, right? The cheapest one is still going to function as much or at the same level as an expensive one, mm-hmm. but it just may not be as reliable, which I'm okay with. But what they don't know is when you buy those cheaper devices, when you're talking about electronics, consumer electronics, more specifically things that connect to the internet, now you're at the mercy of that vendor for patching that that software that's on that device. Yeah, if that uh, vendor has updates. And they will. Okay. That would also be another data point, right? What devices, smart devices, have been released that have not had any vulnerabilities discovered which hasn't required the vendor to update it? Zero. Well, I don't know, right? Right. I mean, plausibly, I bet you when they first rolled out smart devices, everything was firmware-driven and it couldn't be updated. Right? Which that would be a problem. So anyways, moving on. Very good points here, but again, there is there is a need for this label that we came up with. <laughs> that's, that's what I want. I want to see a label on a garage door opener, all right? 
Once I see a label when I'm shopping in Lowe's for a garage door opener or Home Depot, I will know that we won. Up until that day, <laughs> we're going to we're going to be on our soapbox. So, so we got to push f- for that, you know. Oh yeah, what, listeners. What group would that be? <laughs> Consumer Reports or do we make our own thing? I don't even know because InfoSec Sync rating. <laughs> well, so the thing is if you can get the a a government entity behind it to mandate it like who's the FTC right so if the FTC were to get behind it and say hey who's who is handling IOT security I think there's another government agency that's handling IOT security so let's see it would be the FTC yeah they have um FTC announces this was in January 4th, 2017. They talked about this at ShmooCon. So NIST is taking on IoT security, and the FTC announces the Internet of Things challenge to combat security issues with um, with IoT. There you go, Matt. So we need to get one of those guys on the show then. Let's do it. If you guys are out there, we got an open invite at InfoSecSync or uh, what is it? Feedback at infosexinc.com. That's the one. Yep. So um, either way, let's move on. So it is the first and second of these principles where Visio and I just covered those four points. Explain your data collection processes up front. Get consumers' consent before you collect and share highly specific information about their preferences. Make it easy for customers to exercise options. And establish consumer protection principles that apply to new technologies. So it is the first and second of these principles where Visio most spectacularly fell short. Mm -hmm. Their clearly ineffective means of gaining consent was through an option presented to the user um, as smart interactivity. Customers were informed that leaving this option switched on, which is the default setting, meant their personal data would be monitored for the vague and undefined purpose uh, which enables program offers and suggestions. As people, and so they were basically um, kind of they were misled, I but the manufacturer, the manufacturer was playing on convenience. Oh yeah, right. Because we have that paradigm, almost like a dichotomy of security and convenience. So they were playing on convenience because they said, "Hey, they're not going to change the default option, and we can tell them it's going to make their experience with the TV a lot better." And they just bought this TV, and it says "smart" on the label. So they want the TV to be as smart as possible, so they're not going to mess with any of the settings. So, as people tend to do these days, many of Vizio's customers were likely to switch this on, Mm -hmm. thinking it would offer them some form of convenience. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) However, it seems there was no functionality built into the system to enable it to offer suggestions. Womp, womp. So, and it's a reminder to ourselves as consumers that increasingly we have to make sure and be vigilant that we know what we are signing up for and that we are not falling short short (laughs) for marketing spiel and buzzwords, AKA smart X, right? Whatever it is. When we give computers permissions to delve into our personal data. In other words, our data is hugely valuable. And if business does not make a very strong case as to why we should hand it over, we probably shouldn't. So you got to start treating your data like a currency. Oh, I like that, Matt. Right? Because they're going to use that to get money. They were sending this money to marketing firms and things of that nature that would be very interested in this data. So before with data, right, I was worried about my phone number getting out because I would get calls from a whole bunch of people trying to sell me something that I don't need. Now I'm worried about pixelated data on my TV screen correlated to my IP address which is also my geographic location. And by the way, with that IP address, they can look at what I'm on on social media and kind of tie that into it too. Now I'm worried about that. Now I'm not worried about somebody calling me. I'm worried about being presented things that I don't necessarily want on the web. And you could be getting um, uh, text ads, things on your phone. You Anything. could be getting off. It, it definitely ties in the phone too, yeah. but we've, we've gone past that stage now. Like, your physical phone number is the least of your worries now. You know what I mean? So it's kind of changed the 
landscape a little bit. So while this unauthorized data collection isn't new, this is the first case where it has come to light of image recognition technology being used in this way. More common is audio analytics, which as well, the smart TV manufacturers mentioned previously, it also has been used by UK Broadcasters Audience Research Board with express user permission to provide official TV viewing statistics. Mm. <laughs> so visual data is much richer. Vizio's spying eyes were confined to its customer's screen as it sampled the data directly at the source, rather than relying on camera or microphone to tell what people are watching. But with advances being made in the field of machine learning and image processing, computers are increasingly able to, to see using cameras and recognize what it is they are seeing. With the ever-increasing number of cameras and sensors filling the world, it is likely that huge markets will, new markets will open up for this unstructured but highly valuable data. And this means that there are going to be plenty of people looking to make a quick buck by supplying it. So again, we need the label, number one. A cons what would we call it? Let's make up a name right now. It would be I think a, you had the name earlier, right? Um, consumer. Consumer Electronic Security Rating. Yeah. Caesar. Or, or you know, you could put Caesar. The, the oh, sexy man, word, I love it. The sexy word cyber in there because that's the new, you know, that's the, the hotness. So, Consumer Consum Electronics Cyber Security Security, security Assurance Rating, huh? Caesar. Oh. oh. You sure you, you want to hear first? You sure you want to leave this on the podcast, Matt? <laughs> I'm sure little nuggets of knowledge sprinkled about. But so Caesar is number 1 and number 2, treat your data like a currency. And with that, folks, we got to pay the bills and we'll be back right after this. VicTech provides information assurance solutions that result in higher efficiency and protection in defense of their clientele. Their expertise in information security controls and the CNA processes, such as the Risk Management Framework, NIST 837, and supporting lifecycle processes, is why commercial and government entities trust and rely on their solutions. VicTech combines innovative business practices and strategies with their technical expertise and base their own success on customers achieving their goals. Visit them on the web today at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And we're back. So thank you to our sponsors. And now we're into our second story. Nick, what you got for us? So, Matt, our second story comes to us from a writer by the name of Swati Candlewall, writing for the Hacker News regarding, quote, fileless malware, and also from a writer named Penny Crossman with American Banker. So, fileless malware? Yeah. Do and tell. So, fileless malware is what I think is the coolest malware if malware was cool, or if malware is cool, right? It's, it, is, it is cool, right? But as defenders, we don't like it. No. However, it is cool to see what it does. This, so what is this This one's new? sneaky. So more than 100 banks and financial institutions across the world have been infected with a dangerous, sophisticated, memory-based malware that's almost undetectable. And there you go, folks, right there. It's memory-based. A newly published report by the Russian security firm Kaspersky Lab indicates that hackers are targeting banks, telecom companies, and government orgs in 40 countries including the U.S., South America, Europe, and Africa, with fileless malware that resides solely in the memory of the compromised computers. So this malware was first discovered by the same security firm in 2014, and it hasn't been mainstream until now. It's a piece of nasty software that does not copy any files or folders to the hard drive in order to get executed. So usually uh, when we see something coming in, you'll see a payload, it goes into... A program or sit somewhere um, in the Windows system and hides itself as a as a different name or or, or copies a, another name with a, a sort of like system 32.exe but it's got like um, an extra s in there or something like that instead the payloads are directly injected into the memory of running processes and the malware executes in the system's RAM since the malware runs in the memory, the memory acquisition becomes useless once the system gets booted because it goes away, making it difficult for digital forensic experts to find the traces of the malware. 
The attack was initially discovered by a bank security team after they found a copy of Meterpreter, um, an in-memory component of Metasploit, inside the physical memory of a Microsoft domain controller. After conducting a forensic analysis, Kaspersky researchers found that the attackers leveraged Windows PowerShell to load their Meterpreter code directly into memory rather than writing it to the disk. The cybercrooks also used Microsoft's NetSH networking tool to set up a proxy tunnel for communicating with the command and control server and remotely controlling the infected host. They also stashed the PowerShell commands into the Windows registry in an effort to reduce nearly all traces of the attacks left in logs or hard drive after a reboot of the device, making detection and forensic analysis difficult. The ultimate goal of the attackers um, was apparently aimed at compromising computers that control ATMs so that they could steal money. Kaspersky lab researchers plan to reveal more details in April about the attack, which is occurring on an industrial scale worldwide. The attack has already hit more than 140 enterprise networks in business sectors, with most victims located in the U.S., France, Ecuador, Kenya, the U.K., and Russia. And since the threat is so hard to spot, the actual number is likely much higher. Rick McElroy, security strategist at the security company Carbon Black, states that the attacks are increasing because they are much harder to detect than file-based malware. Traditional antivirus is designed to stop only file-based malware. It does not stop. It does nothing to stop the more advanced non-malware attacks, and attackers have quickly realized this. Another more invasive version of this is malware-free intrusions, where the adversary embeds its attack script in legitimate tools already present in the environment. You cannot block them because they're used for legitimate purposes in your environment, but they're being compromised to assist in the intrusion for nefarious purposes, said Dmitry Alpovich, co-founder and CTO of CrowdStrike, the security company brought in to investigate the hack on the Democratic National Committee. That attack was carried out almost entirely using PowerShell and WMI. Um, so we already told you what PowerShell was. The WMI is the Windows Management Instrumentation. It's um, basically a set of specs from Microsoft for consolidating the management of devices and applications in a network. Most existing antivirus and whitelisting technologies cannot cope with these attacks because they're looking for malware and there's no malware for them to find. Even some next-gen capabilities like machine learning aren't able to deal with this because there's nothing to analyze in machine learning. What you really need is a behavioral system that can look at what's going on. If someone tried credentials, even if they're using legitimate tools to accomplish it, the behavior is still malicious. The terms fileless and malware-free may evolve over time, but they represent a genre in cyber attacks that banks need to watch. An early example of so-called fileless uh, malware was the target breach. The cyber criminals put their code in memory and didn't write anything to disk. This is from Aviva Latan, Gartner Vice President. Target was PCI compliant, so to speak, and the antivirus programs generally can't catch anything that's just in memory. And banks are specifically being targeted by this attack. Carbon Black's research found more than 40% growth in attacks targeting financial institutions in 2016. Attackers are very adept at following the money. Most cyber attacks on banks start with phishing, uh, convincing looking like emails with malicious attachments. Bank IT departments usually aim to put those attachments in a sandbox where they can evaluate it in a safe place. The problem is the newer fileless versions are encrypted and they have program logic built in that can detect if they're in a sandbox and understanding what a sandbox looks like so it won't run. To IT, they look uh, like benign Word attachments or PDF files. The criminals have figured out all the most common controls that are put in, including file-based anti-malware and sandboxing and detonation. They work real hard to write malware to defeat that. An antidote to this is alternative technology called content destruction and reconstruction or regeneration. It strips any suspect content out of an email attachment and just delivers the safe plate, uh, the safe piece. Cyber attackers also know that typical anti-malware tools look for files that have been written to disk. By writing the attack in memory or burying it in a registry, they fly under the radar. So newer 
endpoint detection and response tools from companies including Silence, Carbon Black, CrowdStrike, FireEye, and Tanium are designed to detect the newer attacks. The more traditional anti-malware providers like McAfee, Symantec, and Trend Micro are also modifying their software to detect this threat. And all are adding memory protection and memory inspection. Some have um, uh, behavior monitoring as well. So I'll be going to the RSA convention next week, and I'll be looking for the newest and greatest in fileless malware detection, and I'll report back on that. Awesome. So uh, elaborate on that. And RSA, what are you excited to see? <laughs> what am I not excited to see? Um, of course, there's going to be a ton of vendors there. Um, but I'm excited to see uh, the ransomware talks. Um, there's a couple of um, sock talks that I want to go to. Of course, there's some cool parties that are uh, going to be happening. And uh, just talk to all the security folks there, you know, network a little bit. Cool. Is there anybody in particular you're excited to see? or? Oh, yeah. I'm going to meet uh, Rick with uh, Carbon Black and hopefully meet some people with uh, CrowdStrike. How about that? How about that? So, um, I guess we can jump into the next section. So, do we want to cover my um, kind of analysis or just summarization and some points we can elaborate on on the 2017 Cisco Annual Cybersecurity Report? Or do we want to cover some issues that are plaguing security operations centers? Huh, how much time do we have? <laughs> I think we have like 20 minutes left, so... You think we could hit on both real quick? Yeah. So let's start off with um, evolving the Security Operations Center. Okay. So there's a group called Fruition Partners. Mm -hmm. They're a CSC company, and then they um, elevate service management to the cloud. Now, we aren't sponsored by them, any of that stuff. They just had an interesting article... Um, that they had posted. It's a strategy. So it's a three-step roadmap to improve security operations, effectiveness, and efficiency. So um, they say that uh, based upon the Ponymon Institute 2015's cost of data breach study, uh, it kind of illustrated how quickly an organization can identify and contain data breaches and incidents that strongly affect the with different financial consequences. So malicious attacks can take an average of 256 days to identify, while data breaches caused by human error take an average of 158 days to identify. So malicious or criminal attacks are the um, most costly data breaches out of all of them. Okay. So while um, security operation centers continue to invest in detection and monitoring systems and tools, uh, these systems continue to evolve. However, most security operation centers are still being held back by a significant amount of manual processes. So, um, unfortunately, large, well, large enterprise organizations are basing incident detection and response activities on massive amounts of data in order to gain situational awareness and take appropriate remediation actions. Mm -hmm. However, it's not very efficient when your incident response depends upon an army of independent tools that are dispersed, right, and reported engine reporting engines distributed throughout the network. So enterprises are addressing this with incident response automation and orchestration by building their own runbooks and row, um, workflows, and then tapping into software APIs, writing scripts, and de uh, deploying or deploying the commercial IR platforms or the seams, right? So um, staffing and skill shortages will continue as companies struggle to find and keep key re resources while the use of outsourcing is hampered by the ability to incorporate into workflow visibilities and service level agreements. So as the security operation centers will deal with increasing volumes of alerts and successful breaches, efficient cybersecurity case management becomes increasingly critical. But the old strategy of simply adding to staffers or adding staffers to a security team is no longer feasible, largely because the talent is not there. So they offer a basic roadmap, right? With laying the groundwork there, they got a roadmap. And then I also have some data from McAfee Labs to kind of elaborate on. Then we can have a discussion on that. So 
First, they want to increase the collaboration and cross-team efficiencies. So, three points on that. SOCs have the opportunity to increase the automation and workflow to improve the cross-team collaboration, gain the efficiency, and assure closed-loop processes and improve the reporting and visibility. And then they can state, well, state-of-the-art service management um, workflow automation and process management tools can be applied and improvements and refinements can be performed on run books and workflows. So Matt, when you first started talking, um, you had mentioned that there were some processes that uh, were holding some socks back, right? So yep. did it say what kind of processes? It's, I know it said internal processes, but uh, what is that? Like when an incident comes in, they're not right. handling standard, right? Standard, standard operation, operating procedure for your intrusion detection, your triage, right. and your incident handling. Okay, so... So that means from when I see an alert to when I create a case or a ticket uh, to when the incident handler looks at it and determines if there was really any compromise that occurred and then figures out from the information gathered from triage... Uh, network triage if uh, the device is infected and what what the next steps are so that would be an example of like an internal process for incident response and incident handling at one of these organizations so they were saying one of the main problems was was it the timing of uh, their internal processes right okay so that means from intrusion detection right of a of a an alert that were taking too long they were taking too long or triage was taking too long to look at uh, network data or host data or whatever they're doing as triage within the organization. And then that was further delaying the incident handling, you know, the last step, right? Kind of taking care of the issue, making sure it didn't infect anything else or affect anything else on the network. That all was taking entirely too long end-to-end. So, second they have is add intelligence to prioritization, response, and remediation. So they're going to automate the mundane and manual functions, implement closed-loop automated response and validation of remediation, evolve use of intelligence over time with a programmatic approach to application, and then instituting a set of metrics that capture maturity. AKA, am I doing better, worse, or staying the same than I was at X time in the past? So am I doing better Y now than I was X in the past? Well, we're going to so, we're gonna go ahead that? and do better um, and take a break. We'll be right back after this. VicTech is a leader in developing security test plans and procedures and identifying the appropriate tools to support a certification test and evaluation effort. They work with software developers to ensure security software development practices are implemented. VicTech translates security policy and requirements into an IA configuration implementation that considers your operational environment. By implementing world-class cybersecurity solutions and working together as a partner, VicTech helps their clients meet and exceed their objectives. And we're back. We're back. From the break. Gotta pay the bills, right? So, um, we just had that second point, adding the intelligence to prioritization, response, and remediation. And third, the last point is supplement the in-house capabilities with outsourced expertise. So when with best class, uh, in-class automation and workflow, SOCs more easily supplement in-house resources with outsourced ex- expertise to gain better managed staff and skill coverage gaps. Okay. Right. So if you have a skill set that you don't have within the org, you don't send that person to training, even though that would be a good idea if you keep seeing that same thing over and over again. It'd be more cost effective to hire an outside, um, you know, an outsourced expertise consultant, a company that, you know, specializes in that to come in and take care of that particular issue. And, oh, by the way, use that as an opportunity to document the workflows that they use to take care of that problem. And potentially implement it in-house yourself. Hmm. Awesome. So you get free training, basically. Well, no, basically. Not, not really. You paid for it, but you're not paying them for the uh, training part. <laughs> right. Usually, you have the upper C-level suite saying, all right, we had to hire, I don't know if we want to name drop, but we hired uh, this company to come in and do incident handling for this APT that was 
you know, that infected these boxes and we just didn't necessarily have the know with all or wherewithal to take care of it. Right. Right. So they usually say that was a line item on the budget that we spent and the problem was taken care of. So we're probably never going to see that again. What would be smarter is if you have that consultant there, you have a couple of your employees, your senior incident handlers sit with them, kind of figure out where the gap, you already know what the gap in knowledge is because you have to hire the consultant to come in. Now you say, look guys, your job is to make sure that you absorb your sponge when this person is coming in to take care of this particular issue. We're going to have fires going on and all that stuff, but you guys as the senior insulin handlers should have already put in processes that remove you from the day-to-day activities. You should enable your coworkers to continue to function without you here, right? And that allows them to kind of, um, you know, absorb that knowledge and use that knowledge um, when it happens in the future. So, Providing maintenance and access by using a full range of skills and expertise and then continue with staff development through recruiting and in-house development programs, which could be an after action report, Mm -hmm. right? For, hey, guys, we got hit with this APT and this is it and and this is exactly what happened. Um, And we had the consultant come in. This is how we mitigated it. And this is how we prevent it from happening in the future. And then that opens the question of how can we apply the same methodology to other potential anomalous activity that's occurring that we're not detecting? Excellent. So next, what's backing that up, right? So McAfee had the, um, they had a, let's see, State of the Sock in 2016 report that was released. And they said in mid-2016, Intel Security commissioned a primary research study to gain a deeper understanding of the ways in which enterprises use SOX and how they have changed over time and what they will look like in the future. So they had interviews with nearly 400 security practitioners across several countries, industries, and company sizes, which yielded valuable information on the state of the SOC in 2016. So keep in mind what I, what I just reviewed with you know, how you can improve a SOC and what actually happened with the data, right? So number one was alert overload. So on average, organizations are unable to sufficiently investigate 25% of their security alerts with no significant variation by country or company size. That is big. Why, why is that? It's just too much for them. Too much, too much data. Yeah. The IDSs aren't tuned. Okay. Right. Yeah. We know about that, right? Right. And we have a process in place that doesn't allow us to effectively filter out the noise. So having a lot of data is okay if you don't have a tuned IDS or tuned antivirus or whatever. Insert security device slash whatever here, right? But the filters for the analysts or the incident or intrusion detection that's actually looking on on the front line that also needs to be done properly, right? So both of those things untuned and not being kind of squared away, that's alert overload. Your people on the ground are like, whoa. Skirt. So basically you know, they just turn much. the box on and, and let it go. Exactly, and they don't bother tuning it. There's no CCB process in place that says what alerts are our top talkers or our top alerts, what are we getting hit with the most and what's noise. Okay, wow. So second would be, and then also misconfigs, right? So, you know, with the alert overload, you have a lot of misconfigurations. So if you put something out of the box on the network, it's going to be loud because it's just not used to your network, right? It's not, it's not artificial intelligence. It's got to learn. It has to be, you know, it has to be tuned in some way, shape or form. So the second thing, uh, an observation of eight total, right? is triage trouble. So while most respondents acknowledged um, being overwhelmed by security alerts, as many as 93% are unable to triage all potential events. Is that because of lack of training? Or again, with the too much data? I think it's it's a mixture of processes and training, both. Okay. Three, incidents on the rise, whether from an increase in attacks or better monitoring capabilities, 60%... 67 
percent of respondents reported an increase in security incidents. So that means the incidents are too damn high. Like the prices are too damn high. The incidents are too damn high, right? We don't have the people to properly triage it, and we have a, an overload of alerts. So out of all this, first off, with the alert overload, you're missing a fourth, right? And then triage trouble, 93% are able to triage all those remaining 75%, right? And then 67% are saying, hey, we have security incidents on the rise. Not a good, this is not good, right? So all that combined is the security incidents on the rise, probably. Right, and they say the cause of the rise. So of the respondents reporting an increase in incidents, 57% report they are being attacked more often. Mm Mm-hmm while 73% believe they are unable to better spot attacks. So 57% say, yeah, we know, we're getting attacked more often, even though we have an alert overload and some of that stuff may be false positive. But 73% were like, I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so that that goes into um, the cybersecurity shortage that we have here in the United States. And, oh, and that big. we're going to continue to have um, because there's not enough people with with that talent and that skill set to recognize, you know, what an attack is, what's coming through. You know, they just get into it because they think cyber sexy. Exactly. It's the new thing. And then they're like, oh, man, this this sucks. <laughs> so so we can drop another another like gold nugget here. Right. OK. What's that going to be? So cyber incubators. Mm hmm. Right? So we have all these hubs. Yep. You're in a hub right now. Alabama's huge. Alabama's huge for a hub. Um, you're in a hub there at, at uh, what is it, Baltimore. UMBC? Yeah, yep. we got Baltimore here. So academia is trying to match the need of the professional world, right? But the problem is the landscape is changing so much that they can't keep up with the pace. There has to be cyber incubators that are sponsored by these people in the industry that are looking at this stuff every day so we can give these students the tools at year four of their undergrad to get out and do something. Right? Yeah, and there's I, not I a agree. mismatch. Yeah. Right? So that along with Caesar, the <laughs> Consumer Electronics Security, uh, what is it? Security. Ass- See, you forgot assessor- already. <laughs> assessment report? No, what was it? Security. It was something. We got to rewind the tape. But either way, that was another one. So if you're listening at this point and didn't listen to the beginning, rewind. Right? We don't even know what Caesar is anymore. But it's a it's a salad. So, anyways, the most common threat signal, right? It's threat signals. So the most common threat detection signals for a majority of organizations, 64%, come from traditional security control points such as anti malware, firewall, and IPS. Okay. Okay, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Not disagreeing. So proactive versus reactive. The majority of the respondents claim to be this one this must have been a long survey by the way, but either way, the majority of respondents claim to be progressing towards the goal of proactive and optimized security operation, but 26% still operate in reactive mode. AKA mm. with an ad hoc approach to security operations, threat hunting an incident response. So that means they're the type of people that have an IPS, but keep it as an IDS. It's like, we don't want to turn this bad boy off or turn this bad boy on. We're going to be reactive, not proactive and prevent the stuff from actually happening. You got to tune it. You got to tune your IDS and turn it into an IPS. Stage 2.0. Anyways, next. I'm still on my soapbox. So, Adversaries, more than two-thirds, 68% of investigations in 2015 involved a a specific entity, either as a targeted external attack or insider threat. More than two-thirds of investigations in 2015. So they knew who it was. Mm -hmm. Pretty good. So, awesome. But two-thirds, right? That's just more than half. Not where it should be which is 80 to 90% in my opinion. But wow. causes for investigation. The respondents reported and this is the last point that generic malware led the list of incidents at 
leading to security investigations followed by targeted malware-based attacks at 17% and network-based attacks at 15%. So generic Accident, malware, uh, as in malware we already know about? Yeah, drive-bys. Wow. And it's corroborated in the Cisco 2017 annual report that I will not have time to cover in this episode. But I will sprinkle, I will do a salt sprinkle <laughs> after this. So, so let's see. Targeted malware attacks were 17%. Targeted network-based attacks were 15%. And accidental insider threats resulting in potential threats or data loss was 12%. And malicious insider threats were 10%. Direct nation state were 7%. And direct or hacktivist nation state was 7%. So survey respondents said that the highest priority for growth and investment of SOX is to improve the ability to respond to confirm attacks, which includes the ability to coordinate, remediate, eradicate, learn, and prevent reoccurrences. And regurgitate. And regurgitate. (laughs) So... In the Cisco 2017 annual report, and this is my salt sprinkle, right? Um... Let's see. They had basically a few points, right? They had they split it into five different sections. They had uh, attacker, defender, security capabilities, benchmark study, industry, and then they had the conclusion. But under the attacker behavior, guess what the most commonly observed malware was for the 2017 report? Potentially unwanted... Um, applications and suspicious binaries hmm. followed by Trojan Joppers at uh, VBS. So Visual Basic. No, what no fileless malware, huh? No. Nope. No. The, let's see. Yeah, no, not even on the, not even on the, on the horizon here. Okay. So that's crazy, right? So the most commonly observed mal we know what the most commonly observed malware was. It was a sample count of eighty seven thousand three hundred and twenty nine. Whoa. Out of a lot, right? Um, I'll just say I'll leave it at that. A lot. The next one is the Trojan Droppers at fifty thousand. So it's a pretty big jump, right? And that's potentially unwanted apps and suspicious binaries. So if we know what the most commonly observed malware is, and we know where the gaps are in the SOC, how come we can't close the gaps? Why do we keep repeating history? Because all the SOCs don't know what the other SOCs don't know. Sounds like they all need to be centralized. Yeah. Like, you know, put data into some or, data cloud. Or they, need to, or they need to talk to each other. But you know this threat data, you could you could take out specific IPs like that are sensitive to your enterprise. Um, maybe just have the source IP for like you know where it's coming from. All that could go into some type of higher level incident response cloud security as a service type deal. But the problem is, I think most of the vendors want to capitalize upon that. They make it too expensive. The price is too damn high, right? So therefore, you don't have the adoption that you need because let's not forget, if you have that type of service with security as a service, you're at the mercy of the network traffic that your customer network see, one, and two, customer involvement. If you don't have a large customer base and you don't have a lot of data to look at, guess what? Your expensive product it's worthless because it's not going to give the threat intel it needs to to people that are going to subscribe to this cloud. Mm-hmm. So what do they do with normal software that they have to get adopted by a lot of people, right? Because they want to make it popular. They make it open source initially. Why can't somebody come up with some open source? And we already have um, Security Onion, right? Now, I think that has... I'm going to have to do my research... But that has um, Threat Stack and Snorby in it. So I think it may do it, but I'm not sure. But the problem is a lot of the enterprises will not adopt open source solutions for security, right? For right. They want to they like transfer that risk to a third party and have a license. I don't know. It's a conundrum. Yeah. But either way, we got to figure out how to break out of this cycle because it's not a good cycle. And we can sit here and talk about the trends, right? We know what the trends are. 
and how to improve. But the problem is, is there's a there's a disconnect between enterprises and what the industry is seeing and what researchers are reporting as far as seeing in the field. You hear that, Matt? What's that? That music. I do. Man, this has been great. I think we had a real good episode this time. Yeah, it's pretty good. All right, you cool. You got anything going on this week? Uh, nothing really going on this week. Um, a lot of schoolwork, um, and and regular work. How about you? You're getting ready to get wheels up. Yeah, so and get Sunday out to I'm going Fran, right? uh, wheels up to the Moscone Center in San Fran for RSA. So uh, look for me. I'll be wearing the uh, InfoSec. InfoSec Sync uh, polo and uh, t-shirts. So um, catch me and uh, I'll interview if catch, you want. <laughs> ca- catch you outside. Catch me outside. How about, How that? about that? Exactly. So thanks everyone for staying in, in sync, sync with InfoSec Sync. InfoSec Sync has been brought to you by VicTech, established to provide fast and reliable technologies for the U.S. intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net.